The words of that invitation song we're going to sing are taken from Psalm 51, which is believed by many to be the psalm that David wrote after his misdeeds with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite and his willingness to come before God and confess his sin and repent and to beg God's forgiveness. And the psalm we're going to take a look at tonight, Psalm 32, is believed by many scholars also to be a follow-up to Psalm 51. It's actually written before that, written after Psalm 51, and is a, sort of a reflection, if you will, of David on that event and the events of his forgiveness and the blessing of that forgiveness and what it meant to him and sort of his thought process behind what happened when he came before God and and begged God's forgiveness. And as we look at this psalm tonight, I hope that you can find something in this that will be helpful to you in understanding the nature of sin and the role that uh, repentance and grieving over our sin uh, plays in in our forgiveness and, and how that comes about. I believe it's impossible to overstate some of the messages that we find in, in, in Psalm 32 and, and what it can actually mean for us as we consider our salvation, as we consider what God has done for us and, and how that should affect us, uh, not only in recognizing the forgiveness that we have, but how that should cause us to live going forward and, and what that should prompt us to be in our lives. The first two verses alone are really profound when you think about them. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. You know, first and foremost, we should all remember, always remember the true blessing and what that really means to us. You know, the word blessed here, you think of the, the Beatitudes, and Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers, you can substitute the word happy for the word blessed. And David is saying, happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven or whose sin is covered. Happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. You know, it's real easy for us to get caught up in life and to see everything that's going on around us and the, the, the state of the world right now. We look out and there's just not a whole lot of good when it comes to the evening news uh, People like to complain about things. You know, a lot of times I'll ask people, how are you doing? Well, I can't complain, but, you know, a lot of people do complain, and they do it quite proficiently, Um, and we're all guilty of it from time to time, I'm sure. But, you know, when you really think about it, and it's, it's real easy to talk in these terms when things are going pretty well for you, it's easy to talk about how blessed we are when when strife and tribulation and, and heartache are not present in the moment. And we all have experienced those things in our lives. We've all experienced grief. We've all experienced heartache. We've all experienced hard times. Uh, there are people in this room who have long-term health conditions that, are, that they struggle with. There are people who deal with the loss of loved ones. And so it's real easy for me at this moment in time in my life to say, there really isn't anything to complain about because my sins are forgiven. And it's so easy for us to forget this on a day-to-day basis. What gets you out of bed? What keeps you going on a day-to-day basis? What, what is it that sustains you and makes things easy for you to get through? You know, we, we find satisfaction. We find comfort in the things of this world, maybe financial security, maybe 
We find uh, security in stuff or the entertainment that we have. But at the end of the day, just to not sugarcoat it, we really don't have anything to complain about. No matter what our situation in life, you know, we sing the song, Count Your Many Blessings. There was a, a lady one time who didn't think that was a scriptural song because she thought it was impossible to count all of our blessings, and so therefore we shouldn't sing that song because you can't literally count every blessing you have. Uh, that's a little bit silly in my opinion. But, you know, we, we say all the time, let's count our blessings. And I'm telling you right now, if the count ended with this blessing right here, the one blessing, which is the forgiveness of sins, then we don't need to count any others because really nothing else matters. If your sins are forgiven, you have nothing to complain about. And I think that's the main point of what David is trying to get across here. Blessed is the one Happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered, and against whom God does not count iniquity. You know, Paul understood this concept when he wrote the book of Ephesians, and he talked about the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. And some of you may remember this passage from our Ephesians series that we did last year, but he talks about, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he enumerates many of those blessings in great detail in this chapter. And he talks about how that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And you know, when you when you stop to think about just the fact of the forgiveness of sins, that's a pretty amazing gift in and of itself. But what Paul is telling us in this passage here is God didn't just stop at the forgiveness of sins. It's not like God just wiped the slate clean and said, okay, your sins are forgiven. But yet he made us his own. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. We partake in the blessing in the reward of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't just forgive our sins, he does that, but then he also makes us his family and brings us together with the rest of our family in the church. And what a great blessing that is. And remembering that on a daily basis, I think, should be the part of the routine of every single Christian. I find myself forgetting this and taking it for granted and remembering this is truly why life is even worth living because God has made a way for us and he's provided us forgiveness of our sins. You know, this is the only solution to the problem of sin. There's no other solution. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, when the Lord doesn't count iniquity. There's no other way to deal with sin. David didn't say blessed is the man who doesn't have any sin or doesn't have any transgression or doesn't have any iniquity. Why? Because there is no such person. And the only way we can deal with our sin is to have it forgiven by God. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Brother Trevor gave a lesson about the unmerciful servant who owed his Lord a sum of money so great that he couldn't pay it back in a hundred lifetimes. And that man was forgiven of that debt. And instead of being grateful for that and considering himself blessed and returning that favor to those that owed him, he instead went out and tried to strangle every penny he could from the people that owed him. That man didn't appreciate the gift he had been given. And I think many times we don't appreciate the gift that we've been given, that we don't truly understand what God has done for us, 
that he has forgiven a debt in us that we couldn't pay back in a hundred lifetimes. We can't work our sin off. We can't earn forgiveness. We can't cover it up and hide it. The only solution to the problem of sin is forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul talked about us being dead, spiritually dead. What can a dead body do? Nothing. A dead body is helpless, hopeless. And he goes on to say later in that chapter that God made us alive in Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. The only way to deal with the problem of sin is forgiveness. And the only way to find forgiveness is through Jesus Christ. That's the only way that happens, for his name's sake. Paul talked about this in Romans chapter 4. He said, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted him for righteousness. Paul is trying to get across to the church at Rome the idea of, or the concept of justification by faith. You see, a lot of the Jews, and Paul talked about this in Romans 10, they wanted to establish their own righteousness. They wanted to earn their way. They wanted it to be about them and what they've accomplished he said, that's not how this thing works. And so he says in verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. You know, I go to a job every day, every weekday. And every two weeks I get a paycheck. And it's not because the company I work for is giving me a gift. It's because they're paying me what they owe me for my work. Everyone in this room that has a job, it's the same way. You have an employer, they don't just give you a gift. You show up and you do the work. And Paul says, that's not the way faith works. This isn't about, you can't take care of your sin that way. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Abraham believed God, it was counted to him to righteousness. We believe, have faith in Jesus Christ, that's counted to us as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes this Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and so on and so forth. So Paul is using David's idea and thought process here to show that, listen, you can't do anything but with your sin except have God forgive it. And the only way that happens is through Jesus Christ. And David understood that. David understood that there was nothing to be done about his sin except to have it forgiven by God. Notice the way he words this last phrase here. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. It's almost like he's adding this, this caveat. Blessed is the one who's who, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. So is deceitfulness just a quality? You, if you possess that quality, you just can't be forgiven of that? That's not what he's saying here. What he's talking about here is our attitude towards our sin. And there's no deceiving ourselves. There's no trying to deceive God when it comes to the nature of our sin, the fact that it, we actually have sin in our life, and the extent of that sin. There's no dissembling. There's no minimizing of that sin with God. There's no comparing ourselves with other people and say, well, I know I have sin, but you ought to see this guy over here. Look at his sin and how much worse it is than mine. It's being honest with ourselves and honest with God about the nature of our sin and what it means. There's no deceit. And the reason I think that is he goes on to talk about what it took for him to receive forgiveness from God. In verse number three of Psalm 32, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, 
and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David received forgiveness. But when did that happen? Well, he tells us when it happened. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. When was his sin forgiven? When he was honest with himself, when he was honest with God about his sin. I didn't hide it. I acknowledged it. I didn't try to cover it up. I confessed it. And so I think we're talking about different levels of honesty when it comes to our sin. Honest about the fact that we have sin. Honest about the fact that the extent of our sin is great and we're not trying to justify or minimize it in any way. But also honest with ourselves in the fact of what that, what that sin really, really is and who it's against. The impact of that sin. And here's what I mean by that. Here's what David said in Psalm 51. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Against you, you only have I sinned. He's talking to God. And he's begging God for forgiveness. He says, God, I acknowledge I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me, and against you and only you I have sinned. Who did David sin against? You know, when Nathan the prophet came and and confronted David about his sin, and he talked about the parable of this little lamb that had been killed by this man, the only little lamb that was owned by by this peasant. David became infuriated, and he said, whoever this man is, he's going to be punished. And Nathan said, you are the man. And look at what David said. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You know, you could argue that David sinned against Uriah. You could argue that he sinned against Bathsheba. He committed adultery with this woman. He tried to cover it up. He lied about it. He sent a man who was loyal to him off to his death and murdered him to try to keep it quiet. And certainly David betrayed Uriah, betrayed the trust that he had in him. But David said, I've sinned against God. And I think part of what we need to be honest with ourselves with when it comes to our sin, what we need to realize is, yes, our sin affects other people. The consequences of sin are far-reaching. And we can say all day long, well, my sin just hurts me and it doesn't hurt anybody else. But it does. It affects the people around us. But where the real hurt is, where the real pain, where the real struggle comes in is that we are sinning against God and we just don't feel the impact of that like we should. We don't consider the hurt and the harm we are doing when we rebel against God in our sin. I have sinned against you and you alone. You know, Joseph understood this when he was in the house of Potiphar. Potiphar's wife was making advances towards him. How did he handle that? It says, after a time, in Genesis 39, verse 7, after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. He makes a very logical argument to this woman. He lays out all the reasons why he can't do this. He's saying, listen, my master trusts me. 
He's given me control of everything he has. I'm basically his equal. I can do anything I want in this house, and the only thing he's kept back from me is you. But then look at what he says. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It wasn't against Potiphar. Certainly that would have been a betrayal of his trust, but it was against God and God alone. Joseph knew that. How can I do this? And I think, brothers and sisters, when we consider the impact of that, whenever temptation comes along, we're faced with the choice of do I commit sin or do I not? I think a lot of times we're so blasé about it. And we're so like, yeah, I know this is like against the rules or whatever, but it's not really hurting anybody except me. And we don't realize that it is an infraction against God, a direct rebellion and sin against him every time we do that. And I think David grieved over his sin. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up. He was grieving over his sin. And I just don't think people do that anymore. We just don't grieve over our sin like we ought to. I think that's why people get caught up in sin, because they just don't grieve over their sin like they should. And we take the the forgiveness of God, and we take his grace for granted as, as a given. Well, I'll just ask for forgiveness. And we don't grieve over our sin. Many of you in this room, most of you, have lost loved ones. And you know what it means to grieve over that lost loved one, don't you? You know what it means to hurt and to feel the pain of that and the loss. And grieving is a very natural process, but you know, I don't want to do that all the time. There's something cathartic and necessary about the grieving process, but at the end of the day, I don't want to grieve all the time. And I think if we grieved over our sin like we should, then we would think, man, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm tired of grieving over my sin. I want to change. I want to be better. I don't want to go through this all the time. David understood that. My bones wasted away through my groaning. He grieved over his sin. Psalm 38, 18, I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. I feel like the New King James is a little bit stronger in this area than the ESV is, which is why I put both of them up there. I will confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. Either way, the word means the same thing. It means to have this anxious feeling of, of dread and fear of grieving over our sin. I will be in anguish over my sin, he says. And I just don't think we do that like we should. I feel like our attitude towards sin is, well, God's going to forgive it, and so I'm just going to go ahead and do it and then ask for forgiveness. And we don't really take seriously the impact of what that sin does. The Apostle Paul kind of walks through this process of grieving for sin and the result of that here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. If you've been listening to Danny's sermons in 1 Corinthians, talking about all the problems the church at Corinth had, I, I believe this letter here is Paul talking about their response to the, the accusations that he's made against them. And I think this might specifically be talking about the man in 1 Corinthians 5 who was having an inappropriate relationship with his, with his stepmother. But it could be any number of things. It may be specific or it may just be general. Regardless, we see that the church at Corinth and some of the people there responded in the way that Paul wanted them to. And listen to how he goes through this here in 2 Corinthians 7, beginning verse 9. He says, as it is, I rejoice, 
Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Now, let's, see, let's stop there for just a second. Paul says, you were grieved. When I confronted you about your sin, you were grieved about that. He said, but I don't rejoice in the fact that you were just grieved, but that you grieved unto repenting. And you felt a godly grief, he says there. Now, this is important for us to realize when we talk about grieving over our sin. And the reason it's important is because there's one of two ways that grief will take us. There's one kind of grief where someone gets caught in sin and says, well, yeah, I'm ashamed. I'm, I'm worthless, and I'm grieving over the fact, but it's mainly because they got caught and they're embarrassed. But what do we do with the grief? Are you grieved because you got caught, or are you grieved because you really understand what the sin against God actually means and the impact of that in your life? And he's telling them, you had a godly grief because of what I said to you, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. God doesn't want us in a state of constant grief that goes nowhere over our sin. He doesn't want us just to have grief for the sake of grieving. He doesn't want us to be miserable. He wants us to grieve and then take that grief and use it to lead us to repentance that leads to salvation. And Paul says, that's exactly what happened with you. He says, whereas worldly grief produces death, that grief that's just, well, I'm sorry I got caught, it doesn't lead anywhere. It doesn't accomplish anything. He says, see what earnestness, verse 11, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What did their godly grief produce? Well, it Produce this earnestness, this, uh, this sincerity of trying to make things right, this eagerness to clear yourselves, he says. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Look what their grieving process led to. It wasn't just, oh man, we got caught and we're worthless people and we're just going to grieve about it. No, we realize what we've done. We realize the sin that was going on and we grieve over that and we're going to let that grief lead us to repentance, and it's going to produce all these things. And he says, at every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. This is what God wants us to understand about sin. In Psalm 51, paraphrasing here a little bit, the sacrifices that the Lord wants, a a contrite spirit. That's what he wants. He wants a broken spirit, sorry, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. But he doesn't want us just broken and then leave us there broken. He wants us to break, break down and realize that and then to use that to change and to receive forgiveness. Only through acknowledging our sin and the impact of that and being honest with ourselves and with God can that happen. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. I think we need to let verses like this really sink home sometimes. You know, you think about the law of Moses and the punishments that were laid out there for breaking the Sabbath or things like that. And, and the Hebrew writer says, you know, anyone who set aside the law of Moses, they could die without mercy just on the evidence of two or three witnesses. But think about the Christian. Think about the Christian who's received forgiveness from God and then decides, yeah, sin's not that big a deal, really. 
just hurt. It only hurts me a little bit. It doesn't really hurt anybody else. God's going to forgive me. No big deal. Should we grieve over our sin? What do we have to grieve about? I'll tell you what we have to grieve about. We have to grieve about the fact that God sent his son, came here himself in the flesh, and shed his blood on the cross, and gave his life so that we could have forgiveness of sins. And then we just treat our sin and we treat God's forgiveness like it's just a common thing. And don't even think about it. We trample underfoot the Son of God and profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. So then David pivots here, and he talks about the behavior of the forgiven. He, he's recognized the forgiveness he received was because he was willing to be broken and understand the impact of his sin and to repent of that and to receive forgiveness from God's hand. And, and this is the now what? I've received forgiveness, now what? Psalm 32, verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found, Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. He's talking about the forgiven here. Let everyone who is godly, that's people who are forgiven, right? That's the only way for us to be godly, is to be forgiven. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. And he's feeling a sense of urgency here. A sense of urgency for those who are forgiven, and also, I think, a sense of urgency for those who haven't been forgiven, especially those that haven't been forgiven. But he's telling you, listen, you have this gift, this blessing of forgiveness. What are you going to do with that? Don't squander it. Take it. Take advantage of it. Seek God. Offer prayer to God at a time when he may be found. We read in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You know, we have opportunity right now. This very night, we have opportunity to seek God while he may be found. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed the next hour. Seek God while he may be found. Paul talks in Romans chapter 14, verse 11, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so that each one of us will give an account of himself to God. You know, it's not like God, on the day of judgment, is going to force everyone like puppets to go down on their knees and acknowledge him as God. When that day comes, every single person, every soul that has ever lived is going to willingly do that whether they had already done it before or had not ever done it before. For some people, it's going to be too late. There's going to come a time when the long-suffering and the patience of God will come to an end. And what about you and your life? Are you seeking God while he may be found? Whether you've received forgiveness or not, if you haven't, it's especially urgent for you that you receive the forgiveness of God. Another behavior of the forgiven here that he talks about is seeking refuge. Psalm 32, verse 7, You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. You know, a lot of people in this world seek refuge, and they seek it in different places. Drugs, alcohol, sexual immorality, entertainment, recreation. Some people seek refuge in money and their jobs. Some people seek it in their family. Not all the things that we talked about are necessarily 
evil in and of themselves. You know, the scriptures are replete, especially in the book of Psalms, this concept of seeking refuge in God. You're my hiding place. You're my rock, my shield, my fortress. We have this innate desire as human beings to, to find refuge in something. We know that there's refuge needed. Just a lot of times we don't know where the refuge is needed, what the refuge is needed from. We don't understand where the true refuge lies. You know, we talked about the book of Revelation a couple of months ago, and uh, there's a couple of groups of people here I want to contrast as I was thinking about this. In Revelation 6, we find that the seals are being open, God's wrath is being poured out, or rather John is prophesying about that. And as we read in, in Revelation 6, verses 15 through 17, about God's wrath being poured out uh, on what we find to be the, the empire of Rome, we see an interesting thing happen with the people that that wrath is being poured out upon. Verse 15 says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Listen to verse 16. Calling out to the mountains and the rocks. They're praying to the mountains and the rock, Fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? These wicked people whose God, who God's wrath is being poured out upon, they're seeking refuge. And they're calling out to the hills and the rocks, and they're saying, just send an avalanche and cover us up and protect us from God's wrath. It wasn't any protection from God's wrath. There was no refuge to be found from God's wrath. The fact is, there's only one refuge from God's wrath, and that's in the refuge that God himself provides. And so we read in Revelation 7, verse 13, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where, they, where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, this great persecution that the church was going to go through by the Roman Empire. He says, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Provide refuge, shelter, safety, security. Who were the ones that had refuge? Who were the ones that had shelter? Those that had, had their robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Those who remained steadfast. Those who had faith in Jesus Christ and served him, who sought God while they could, who recognized the impact of their own sin, who grieved over their sin and repented and put their faith and trust in the blood of Jesus. Only one place to find refuge, and that's in his blood. In Psalm 32, verse 8, he talks about the stubbornness that's innate in almost every human being. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. We get kind of stubborn in our pride sometimes, don't we? We don't want to admit we're wrong. We don't want to admit we have fault. My call was here Sunday for those of you that weren't here or didn't hear his sermon talking about the fact that, in being open and honest and frank about the fact that, can we just admit we're all messed up? <laughs> can we just admit that we've all got sin, we've all got problems, and we put on this front, and we put on this 
for lack of a better word, a show to, to, to the world that says I'm perfect. And, and obviously we need to repent of our sin and we need to avoid sin. But to, to claim that we've got it all figured out, it's, it's just noise. And what he's saying here is don't be stubborn like a mule that doesn't know what's good for him. Take my advice now. Seek the Lord now while he can be found. Acts chapter 7, verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen is talking to the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, and he's saying, you're just like the people that came before you. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. He says, look through your own history. You've seen how they've murdered the prophets, the prophets who prophesied the coming of the Messiah. You saw what they did to them, and then you saw the Messiah come, and then you killed him. You didn't learn those lessons. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You know, we're real good at criticizing the the Jews, aren't we? The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. We're real good about casting stones at them. And saying, man, why couldn't they just see it? Why, couldn't, why didn't they know what they were doing? Yet we have the fully revealed word of God, the entire lens of the New Testament even, the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus Christ, and we make the same mistakes because we're so stubborn and not willing to bend. Seek the Lord while he may be found. He concludes this chapter, verses 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Now, I'm just guessing here, but I, I almost bet that Joel Osteen loves this verse. And he loves to take it out of context and slap it right down the middle of his prosperity gospel. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. You just trust in the Lord. You're not going to have any problems. You're going to have all the money that you want, and everything is going to be great. And that is not what David is saying here. In Psalm 51, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. This is all about his spiritual condition. It's all about acknowledging what God has done for him. If you're going to hold on to your sin, if you're going to keep silent, let your bones rot, feel the heavy hand of the Lord upon you, be dried up in the sun spiritually, Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. How do you trust in the Lord? You acknowledge your sin. You acknowledge the impact of it. And the importance of realizing that we sin against God and that does great harm to him. And every time we do that willingly, we trample underfoot the Son of God. And so we give that to God and we say, I'm a sinner And I acknowledge my sin. I confess my sin. And we receive forgiveness. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. How can you be upright in heart? How can you be righteous when your sins are forgiven? No other way for that to happen. Feel the sense of urgency. If you've never been obedient to the gospel tonight, if you've never had your sins washed away in the blood of the Lamb, Please feel that sense of urgency tonight. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed the next hour. Make the choice tonight. Grieve over your sin. And then give it to God. 
If you're willing to come and confess Jesus Christ as the Son of God, repent of your sin, be buried with him in baptism, do that tonight. If you need the prayers of this church, please come while we stand and sing.